Welcome to Reliance's Sunday Sermon. Worship with us at 8, 9.30, or 11 o'clock a.m. We hope you're encouraged by today's message. So today I want to talk about the communion of saints. So if you grew up in that liturgical expression, some of you probably recited, um, did congregational readings in this way, where you'd recite one of the Apostles' Creed or the Nicene Creed. Anybody? You know what I'm talking about? Okay, so the Apostles' Creed was developed around the 4th century AD, 5th century, somewhere around there, and it was really in response to a lot of false doctrine that was trying to creep into the church. Not much has changed in 1,500 years. You see what I'm saying? But anyway, back then, they decided what is the core tenets of faith that we need to say this is the core tenets of faith, and we will not deviate from that. And so the Apostles' Creed was developed. And so I grew up in an expression that was kind of, kind of liturgical, but also contemporary, if you want to call it that. And so I remember as a kid, I would, I would sit with my dad, a lot of times in the front row until I became a teen, and then I would try to work my way back, right? But, but with my dad, I remember we would say the Apostles' Creed um, nearly every Sunday, at least in one of the services, more the liturgical service. And so I just remember as a kid, I didn't understand it all, but I remember how booming it was when people behind me, I'd hear them kind of thunder out this, I believe in God the Father, the Almighty, the maker of heaven and earth. You know what I'm saying? And so as a kid, I remember that. Now, I didn't have a grid to take it all in, but there was something beautiful about declaring what we believe as one body. And anyway, in, in the Apostles' Creed, there's, there's several lines near the end that I, that I kind of want to highlight today. And it says this, in case you got those up there on the screen. It says, I believe in the holy, universal, or worldwide church, is what that means. And I believe in the communion of saints. I believe in the communion of saints. Now, the communion of saints is not, you know, a lot of times what we associate with communion. It's not the bread and the juice. It's the body of Christ. It's the fellowship, the connection of believers. It's, it's the togetherness that we have. And I'm not just talking about in a physical location. This is a communion of saints right now. This is a fellowship happening. But I'm talking about in one spirit, in one accord, in one heart, and in one mind. Like we would read in the book of Acts. And it says the early church was in what? One heart, one mind, one accord. That's the communion of saints. And this is the togetherness that I profess in the body of Christ. And this is the togetherness that, that even Jesus declares. In John 17, if you have your Bibles, open to John 17. It'll also be up on the, on the screens here in a moment. But in John 17, we find Jesus praying. Now, this would be one of his last recorded prayers, at least one of the longest of his last prayers in the Gospels. And this, this prayer would come just a few hours before Jesus would be arrested. He would be unjustly condemned. Um, he would be mercilessly beaten. And then, then he'd hang on a cross. Just a, just a few hours. And, and Jesus knew what was coming. Now, I don't I don't know the full details of what that meant, but Jesus knew that suffering was coming just a few hours later. And yet, what do we find Jesus doing on that night? He's eating with his friends, he's eating supper with his friends, and he's praying. So just a side note, church, I think that we need to break some bread together a little bit more, and I think we need to pray a little bit more together, amen? If Jesus modeled this on this night, this is probably something that we as a church can model even now. Just a little side note. But before we get to the, the heart of what Jesus says, Here's why this is a big deal. God is praying to God. God the Son is praying to God the Father, and the Bible records it for us. That, that should like open our eyes. God is praying to God. It should be like a neon blinking sign. Pay attention. 
Before Jesus would go and hang on a cross, what does he pray for? Just hours before he would go and be mercilessly beaten and then hang on a cross. What would he intercede for in that moment? John 17, we find three things that Jesus prays for and intercedes for. First of all, Jesus prays that God would be glorified. I mean, that was always Jesus' life, that God would be glorified. Second of all, Jesus prays for his disciples, specifically his disciples. And then Jesus prays for all believers. If you've said yes to Jesus, you're in that camp. I want to focus on the last part of Jesus' prayer. This is a prayer for all believers to be unified. So let's read this together. Would you stay? I mean, let's, let's do a little liturgical thing. This is what we used to do in church. Stand with me as we read the word of God. I kind of like this. This is, this is nice. We've been talking about it. John 17, 20 through 23 says this. My prayer is not for them alone. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message, that all of them may be one, Father, just as you are in me and I am in you. May they also be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. I have given them the glory that you gave me, that they may be one as we are one, I in them and you in me, so that they may be brought to complete unity. Then the world will know that you sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. Amen. You can go be seated. It's the word of God for the people of God. That's what my dad used to say as we would read. It's the word of God for the people of God. Amen. I kind of like this. This is, this is fun. Going back to the roots. So Jesus prays three things, even in that specific part of John 17. He says that they may be one, believers may be one, that we may be in God and in Christ, and that the world will then know Jesus. It's easy to look at John 17 just kind of in a vacuum. If we just were to hijack this thing out and read it, we're like, oh, man, that's so sweet. Thank you, Jesus, for praying that we would be one. I like oneness. I like unity. But it, again, if you read it in the context of all that's happening, Jesus would literally sweat drops of blood hours from this point. And that is a medical condition. It's rare. But it's a medical condition when somebody is under emotional like, stress and strain. Very rare. But it is a medical, I looked it up, I can't pronounce it, but it's a, it's a real medical condition. Jesus experienced this. And so when he was anguishing and interceding for you and for me, for all believers, what did he war for? What did he intercede for? Yep. Oneness in the body of Christ. Unity in the body of Christ. There is something so significant about unity in Christ and in his body. If Jesus prays for it, then it's totally possible. If Jesus prays for it, then it's totally... I, I have been guilty at looking around. Again, I've been in church a long time. I've been guilty at looking around at the body of Christ and saying, wow, there's not a whole lot of hope there. I'm just being honest. I mean, I'm just, okay. But man, if Jesus prays for it, then it is totally possible. And honestly, he's responsible for the grace that, that gives us the grace to do so, the strength to do so. What a bold prayer, though. Jesus says, oh, man, this is crazy. Father, may they be one like you and I are, are one. Jesus is praying for Trinitarian kind of unity in the body of Christ. The Trinity, eternal, in perfect fellowship and unity. Throughout all time, beyond our scope of even timeliness, timeless, whatever it is, like, He's praying for that as if it's possible. Trinitarian kind of unity. And again, I'm over here thinking like, can we just have a piece of that? 
And he's like, I want, I want you to experience that, church. I want you to experience that because you can. I've given you the grace to do so. That's why I sent Jesus. In fact, even now, whew, even now, what is Jesus doing? Romans 8.34 says this. Who then is the one who condemns? No one. Christ Jesus who died, more than that, who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. Did you know that you have a great high priest interceding for you right now? Jesus is interceding for you at the right hand of the Father right now. Now, I cannot even begin to fathom the, the fullness of this verse. But I believe that if Jesus was going to intercede for unity before his death and resurrection, then there's a good chance he's still in, interceding for unity in the body of Christ now. Why? Because we haven't arrived at unity yet. I, I believe it. I believe that he's interceding for his inheritance because he's yet to receive the fullness of that, which is you and I. And then he's also interceding for, for oneness in the body, in his, in his inheritance. Unity is the very image, the very character, the very heart of God. This is why unity in the church is under attack. Satan hates the image of God. He hates the image of God in us personally. He hates the image of God in us collectively. The devil's entire playbook is to distort, diminish, and wreck that image. And a primary weapon he uses is taking the truth of God and making a counterfeit. He's not really all that creative. He just simply takes the truth and he says, well, how could I twist it just enough, one to two degrees, five degrees, 10 degrees, to where then this isn't the plumb line anymore? That's his entire playbook. And so let me share a few examples of this, personally and then collectively as the body of Christ. So in Genesis 1.27, it states this. You probably heard this at weddings and thought, that's a, that's a nice verse. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. In one verse, it says he created them. He's got design, folks. And in fact, he takes great pleasure in his design and in his work because he would say it is, it's good. It's good. And so Satan's counterfeit is to see people to think that they can change God's design, that a man can be a woman and a woman can be a man. Now, I'm not going to go down that rabbit trail today because I'm simply not attacking that some people struggle with that, that temptation. But I'm simply saying that God outlines what truth is in his word. Sexual identity is under attack. We can agree on that. Another one, if God says, I knit you in your mother's womb in Psalm 139, guess what Satan is after? That's not a baby. That's a clump of cells. That's just a fetus. That's just tissue. Life itself is under attack. If Jesus prays for our identity and oneness, collectively, make them one, Father, guess what's under attack? Unity in the body of Christ is under attack. Because one of the most profound images of God and man is a church, a bride that is unified, his body unified. Guess what? Jesus is coming back for one bride. He's not coming back for multiple splintered brides. He's coming back for one bride, and I believe very soon. Now, what that means, I'm still processed with the Holy Spirit. I don't know the day or the time, but it's much sooner than 20 years ago, 40 years ago, yesterday. He's coming back for one bride. And yet, even knowing the war that's waged against us, and it's a true war. It's a spiritual war that manifests itself in the physical. But even knowing that, I remain hopeful. Why? Because Jesus himself intercedes for it, even now. I have hope. 
So let's get real for a moment. I've been in church my whole life. I've been a Christian since I was a kid. Uh, I worked as a pastor for over 15 years. I have plenty of stories in the church of dysfunction, disunity, and wreckage. I've got stories on division, strife, envy, jealousy, and I've been the main character in some of those stories. It's the story of people, including myself, walking in our own flesh. Paul would say in Galatians, for the flesh desires what is contrary to the spirit, and the spirit what is contrary to the flesh. They are in conflict with each other. They are. They simply are. And I walk in flesh, and thank you, Jesus, that you're giving me the grace to work out my salvation with fear and trembling. I'm eternally saved, but I'm still a work in process. The Lord is still saving me from my own flesh. Amen? Every one of you as well. But if unity is God's desire, then it's worth fighting for in the body. It's actually worth fighting for in your own family. If you've got a strained relationship with a son or a daughter, with a parent, with a friend, with a coworker, it's worth fighting for. And you use different weapons than the world uses. The, the weapons that the enemy uses are pride, aggression, unforgiveness, and bitterness to sow division. Therefore, we fight with different weapons. We fight with humility. We fight with gentleness. We fight with forgiveness and understanding to sow unity. This is a spiritual principle. This is a kingdom reality of what you reap, you sow. That is a kingdom principle. If you sow the weapons of the world, you will reap the, the, the harvest of the flesh. If you sow the, wep the weapons of God, you use the weapons of God, you will sow the kingdom, or you will reap the kingdom in the spirit, and you'll reap unity in the body. That's good stuff. Unity is worth fighting for. Unity takes effort. Unity takes sacrifice. Unity takes selflessness. Is that challenging? Heck yeah. Absolutely. Because it means dying to your own flesh. But the harvest is totally worth it. Let me read a few, few scriptures here for you to highlight this. Romans 14, 19 says this. Paul would say, let us therefore make every effort. Make every effort to do what leads to peace and to mutual edification. Ephesians 4, 1 through 3. As a prisoner for the Lord, then I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. Be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. Make every effort. There it appears again. Make every effort to keep the unity of the spirit through the bond of peace. Colossians 3, 13 through 14 says this, bear with each other and forgive one another if any of you have as a grievance against someone. Forgive as the Lord forgave you. Woo. And over all these virtues, put on love, which binds them all together in perfect unity. Forgive as the Lord forgave you. Lord, help me to forgive as, you've, as I've been forgiven. As freely I've received, Lord, may I, I freely give. Unity is both a supernatural grace and intentional act unto the Lord and to others. You and I don't stumble into unity. <laughs> we don't all of a sudden trip and like, oh, I arrived at unity. Oh, that was nice. That was pretty easy. Woo! It's so good. No, it's, it's by the grace of God. And it's also your choice to partner with the grace of God to make the effort. I'm a father to six kids, so I got a boatload of children, and... Uh, you know, I guess not in comparison to some, but it's, it's still, a, it's still a, quite the harvest. Our, our house, you know, can get a little tight at times. But one of the things that blesses me the most as a father is when I will overhear or I'll witness my children playing together. There's something about it. There's something about it because whether they can articulate it or not or they recognize it or not, they have somehow made an intentional choice to humble themselves, to find a common ground, to play whatever it is they're playing without just bickering the whole time. 
Now, that happens in my house as well. But, but at the same time, they've made some intentional effort. And so when my son Micah, is he in here today? Where's he at? I'm picking you out. This is what happens to being a PK, preacher's kid. Sorry, dude. When my son Micah is playing with my daughter Lila, and actually they can tend to do this a little bit more simply because I think they're actually a little more alike than they would like to uh, admit. But when they do, like, actually play together, laugh together, enjoy each other's company, and I overhear it, like, that blesses me. That brings such joy to my heart. And I think, but that is just but a reflection of the joy that the Father receives. You want to bless him? Then you hang out with brothers and sisters in Christ. And when he gets to see his kids honoring one another, serving one another, submitting to one another, loving one another, forgiving one another, bearing with one another, having patience with one another, you will bless the name of Jesus. Feel free to sing it in a song. That's the exclamation point. But live it out in your life. That's how you bless the name of Jesus. I just want to bless you, Jesus. How can I do that? Hang with my kids. I think that's what he's saying to the church. Hang out. Enjoy each other's fellowship and company. Here's the thing. I think that unity is one of the sweetest fragrances that fill the throne room of God with worship. I love corporate worship. I really do. I love that the, that the body of Christ can sing in unison and declare these songs out by faith. But man, I think humility is like the currency of heaven. I really do. And why is it so sweet and such an aroma in heaven? Because it takes sacrifice. Unity costs you something. Unity costs me something. Are you willing? Are you willing to make the effort so that the King of Kings would receive that praise of worship through unity in the body? Um, last year, about this time, it was actually early August. Look at my time here. Okay, we'll wrap it up here soon. But last year, about this time, we uh, we took a, a trip. There's about 20 of us, and we got to go to uh, Washington D.C. And so um, there's a place there. It's called David's Tent, and it's really just a 24/7, 365 tent that you, you come and you, you pray and you worship. And so they'll have teams come from different places in the United States and around the, around the world, and you can pick time slots, and then you can just, you know, sing unto the Lord, pray unto the Lord. And it's, the really cool thing is it's on the National Mall. So if you're familiar with that, you got the Capitol building just like that way. You can look out the tent and see it over there. Then you can look to your right, and you can see the Washington Monument. And so it's situated right where people are coming and going, tourists and all the activities of Washington, D.C. in the swamp. I'm not getting political. I'm just saying there's a lot of stuff there. We won't go there. It needs prayer. Let's just say D.C. needs prayer. Earnestly. Whether you agree with the person or not, they need prayer. Uh, anyway, so the, the cool thing about this is um, it was hot. I mean, you could say, well, that's not very cool. Um, but like that week that we went, it was quite warm. That that week that we went, we had some plane issues coming home, and so we spent a lot of time in the Minneapolis airport, and several others had to stay overnight in St. Louis, and, you know, we were waking up at weird and random times at 2 a.m. So for some people to go and sit in the prayer room and, and worship and, and pray, you know, so we're like doing high fives in and out, we're eating at random times, and there's just a lot of things that in the physical, with our natural vision, we could say, man, that would get under my skin normally, and I would probably respond not so kindly or Christianly, but it was so beautiful because there were 20 of us. And normally in the prayer room, the band far outweighed the people coming into the prayer room. It's three, four, five, six, seven, but 10, 10 max. So it wasn't about the numbers or anything of that. But I felt some of the sweetest worship that I have ever experienced. 
And it wasn't for me or unto me. It was unto Jesus. Because we got to do it in community, to honor one another, to submit to one another, to say, what's on your heart, Carl? Pray it. Go for it, man. And then we would just yes and amen to that sucker. You know what I'm saying? Like, it was awesome. Because there was honor. There was submission to one another. It was one anothering at one of the most beautiful reflections that I, I could describe. And I'm, I'm even failing to describe it. But I'll always look back to that and worship and say, Lord, help my life to reflect that. Now, with that said, I've also experienced difficulty with other believers. And I know some of you have been hurt by people in the church. Not, not, not going to negate that. I'm not even going to try to justify it. It's just a simple reality. We've been hurt by people. And if you haven't, you will someday, somehow, by somebody. My wife and I actually experienced some fairly deep wounding by a handful of people in another church. This was, I don't know, seven, eight years ago now. And I actually got out of full-time ministry for a while, kind of because of it. And, and to be honest with you, at first, I wanted to throw in the towel on the church. You know, I, I kind of had the stinking thinking that I can serve Jesus without other Christians. <laughs> God, I love you. You know I do. But these people drive me crazy. And, and they're jerks. And, you know, the list goes on and on. But after a couple years and, you know, the, the Holy Spirit getting all up in my business, as he normally does, and by some really good spiritual mentors, you know what? I've actually come to love the bride of Christ more than I ever have. And here's what I learned in that season, what I carry on into today. I cannot cl claim Christ and yet despise his body. Amen. I cannot claim Christ and yet despise his body. That is an unbiblical way of thinking that'll lead you down some dark paths. We need each other. My, my, my head is for my body, and my body is for my head to succeed. Now, sometimes my mind thinks I can do things. My body has to remind it, nope, not happening today, brother. But they're for each other to succeed. I mean, wouldn't it be weird if they were totally disjointed? We'd call that off, and we need to go get help. And yet, why do we think in the body of Christ that we can walk that way, and yet be like, I'm totally fine with that? We cannot claim Christ and yet despise his body. 1 Corinthians 12, 27 says this, All of you together are Christ's body, and each of you is a part of it. Colossians 1.18, Christ is also the head of the church, which is his body. John 13, 34 through 35 says this, a new command I give you, love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. 1 John 4, 19 through 21 says, we love because he first loved us. This is the how. We love because he first loved us. Whoever claims to love God yet hates a brother or sister is a liar. That's the truth of God. You take that up with the author. Whoever, who does, for whoever does not love their brother and sister whom they have seen cannot love God whom they have not seen. And this is a new command I give. Anyone who loves God must also love their brother and sister. Francis Chan, I admire that guy. I believe he's a, he's a man of the Lord. He wrote this. When love is shallow, all it takes is something as trivial as a disagreement to divide us. Here's the thing, that, the, the verse I just read last, 1 John 4.19 says this, we love because he first loved us. You want to love other people in the capacity that Christ wants you to love them? Experience his love. Realize that you got to receive his unconditional love. And if you've never experienced that, I would love to have a conversation with you. It's not going to be my, my words that are going to bring you to that revelation, but I would love to talk to you and pray that the Holy Spirit would meet us in that time so that you could experience his love and therefore love in the capacity that he's calling you to love. It's, it's a command. It's not an option. This is a command I give you. 
Love and unity are what, what mark the bride of Christ. And I'll, I'll end with this. In, in John 17, 23, and I read it earlier, but it says this, I and them and you and me, this is Jesus speaking, so that they may be brought to complete unity. Then the world will know. Then the world will know that you sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. John 13, 35, by this one, by this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. Love is the marker of a disciple, not church activity, not church attendance, love. Here's the deal. I really believe that the world will take notice of the church when we start loving one another and walking in unity. More artistic and well-crafted worship songs isn't gonna do it. Thank you, Jesus, for that. More fiery, passionate sermons isn't gonna do it. Thank you, Jesus. Bigger buildings being built of churches isn't gonna do it. We have plenty of big church, we have plenty of big buildings in, in this world. But love and unity are what mark the bride of Christ. So this morning, I, I just wanna take but a few moments. You know, we just got a few moments, but I wanna go to a place of reflection. I think the, the Holy Spirit will meet you there. Casey, you got those questions. I just, I just want to take a few moments and, and you ask these questions. And this is an ongoing thing before you and the Holy Spirit. Like this isn't a one-time Sunday morning on Ju July 17th and it's all figured out. This is something where the Holy Spirit will meet you. I want you to ask these questions. Jesus, in what areas of my life is community broken, fractured, or strained? Now some of them will be, you'll be like, yeah, I definitely know that one. I mean, it's, it's pretty obvious in my life. And others, the Holy Spirit may just prompt you and say, hey, there's actually some division here. And you're like, you're surprised. But take it up with him. He'll lead you to that place where he, he wants you to sow in unity and what that looks like. Second of all, Holy Spirit, how have I contributed to that division? I mean, as, as David would pray in the Psalms, Lord, examine my heart, see if there's any offensive ways within me. That's really what that question is. And if you feel condemnation, that's not of the Holy Spirit. But if you feel the kindness of the Lord leading to your repentance, that's of the Holy Spirit. Go down that road. And then Jesus, how can I be intentional to participate in bringing unity to that place, that broken place that you prayed for? And how can I participate in seeing your prayer in John 17 become reality in my life and in my spiritual family? Would you do that? Just, just take a few moments. You need to take a picture, take it up with the Lord tonight, tomorrow, the rest of your life, amen. Feel free to do so. But let's just take a few moments and just maybe just ask one of those of the Holy Spirit. And then I'll, I'll finish this out with a corporate prayer and a yes and amen to this time. Thanks for tuning in today. To find out how to get more involved, go to reliancecommunity.org. Have a great week.